Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put into a time capsule. They can pick anything they want, but they must pick four things that they treasure and would like to keep safe or have again. And they also have to pick one thing they'd like to forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the broadcaster, writer, journalist, and a forerunner in the world of podcasting, Ollie Mann, who began podcasting in 2007, hosting the interactive comedy show Answer Me This with Helen Zaltzman. The Sony award-winning podcast finished in 2021 on its 400th episode, having achieved over 30 million downloads. In 2015, Ollie launched a magazine show podcast, The Modern Man, double N, as in his name, which has twice been nominated for Podcast of the Year at the UK Radio Academy Awards. Ollie has presented hundreds of hours of radio, most recently as the host of Radio 4's The Mail Room and Forethought. His documentary, Podcasting the First Ten Years, aired on Radio 4, and for many years he was a weekly contributor to BBC Radio 5 Live's Saturday edition. Following regular columns in The Telegraph Men and The Observer, he now writes It's a Man's World, the leading personality column in each issue of The Reader's Digest. And after 14 years at the podcasting coalface, Ollie is dipping his toes into the burgeoning daily market with Today in History with the Retrospectors, a daily 10-minute On This Day in History podcast, co-produced by his longtime collaborator Matt Hill and with a theme tune by our very own John Fenton Stevens, or Pass the Peas Music. The show launched in May 2021. 
It surpassed over 1 million downloads in its first six months, including from me, and I thoroughly recommend it. But do wait until you've got to know Ollie a little better by listening to the five things from his life he'd like to put in a time capsule, which fortunately is starting now. St. Katz, that's what I'm going to talk to you about. Oh, I'm right, going to talk okay. about the lovely St. Katz. I did, I rehearsed the very first uh, Shakespeare that I ever did in the gardens of St. Katz. I didn't think you were that old. Were you, were you the original Hamlet? <laughs> I was the skull. <laughs> uh, how come? I got invited to audition for something, and I auditioned for a Shakespeare, and I got cast as Orlando in As You Like It. Good gig. And we rehearsed it there, and then we performed it in the open air. I can't remember which college it was. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you don't remember which college you performed it at, which presumably would have been the one of the ones that was very oldie-worldie and had pretty yellow stone buildings and, and all the things exactly, people want. Yes. Whereas That's exactly right. St. Catharines, for people who haven't been to Oxford, is... I mean, there's actually a couple of really brutalist 1960s, 70s ones, and St. Catharines <laughs> is, is the prettiest of those. But, yes. I mean, it's an acquired taste, isn't it, that style of architecture? Yeah, I like the fact that in the middle of Oxford there is this place that it's sort of hidden away because you go in and then you go, oh, I didn't expect this. You you think everything's going to be oldie-worldie, don't you? Yeah. I mean, and you, and you think that's terribly bold and interesting, don't you? I think it's awful. Like, I mean, I, re- <laughs> I applied to St. Catharines because I thought I'd get in because it was sort of less popular and they took 15 people a year for English literature, whereas some of the sort of more prestigious ones at the time were taking like three or four a year. Mm. So I thought I'd get in and I'd had the experience of not getting into Cambridge. I only applied to Oxford because I failed to get into Cambridge. So the following right. year, in a year out, I reapplied to Oxford, carefully chose a college that I thought I might get more luck at. They have a, <laughs> a, a chair of contemporary theatre. I don't know if you know that. Oh, right. Yeah, the, the Cameron Mackintosh Chair of Contemporary Theatre, which is wow. a very grand name for kind of, you know, Trevor Nunn turning up twice and giving a lecture during the year and having a champagne evening kind of thing. But um, (laughs) it was, you know, I thought, well, if they've got this kind of cool theatre thing going on, which I was into, and it was a 1960s college and they had a bigger intake, they took more state school kids as well. It seemed a bit less sniffy. I thought, right, I'm going to try and get in there. Um, But the actual architecture, like personally, I I really dislike 1960s. I find it really oppressive. And and this, Mm. this idea of like... Because if you know, the whole of Katz was designed by Arne Jakobsen, the Danish architect. Mm. Everything, down to like the spoons in the dining hall. You know, everything, wow. the door handles. To the extent that some weird like architecture geeks come and nick stuff because it's a souvenir because everything's worth a couple hundred quid, even a spoon. Yeah, 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 um, sure. <laughs> and his whole philosophy was kind of like, it's open... We don't have a cathedral. How bold. Uh, There might even be women here. But I actually found it in the winter, in the dark, drizzly rain, the the rain-streaked concrete, Mm. just actually depressing. I do like the big glass walls. One wall of glass, you can't disagree with that. But you want... (laughs) No, no, that and Coventry. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) Similar to Coventry. Like, if it's facing out to the field, it's lovely. If it's facing the other bit of the college, it's just awful. I was clearly spoiled. It was right in the middle of summer. So I walked in and went, oh, isn't this lovely? And, of course, it didn't have any students in it. Yeah, well, that helps, so, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. They were in everything. Uh, we have another strange connection in as much as that Helen Zaltzman comes from Tunbridge Wells, which is where I am. Are you there right now? No. Are, are, yeah. you, are you at the Helen Zaltzman Memorial Shrine as we talk? Absolutely. We're here. The crowds are here. The candles are lit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're just waiting for her to appear, you know, like Madonna at, at Lourdes. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, I met Helen at St. Catherine's. So that's where I met her. 
Ah. Um, she was my, I mean, this is another frightfully sort of Oxford thing. It's kind of embarrassing, really. <laughs> she was my college mother. I don't know if you're aware of this scheme. I'm not at all, no. So <laughs> it's quite nice, really. It just means mentor. And again, it's it's quite nice for kids that don't come from sort of privileged backgrounds. I mean, I did. I went to an independent boarding school. But, mm. you know, nonetheless, I didn't go to one of the traditional public schools. So even I felt no. a bit like, oh, I don't know if I can navigate my way around all of these social stratas. For kids that weren't from those kind of environments at all, it was really difficult getting there. Yeah. And so they had this scheme where you get a mentor who's in the year above, who sort of shows you the ropes, helps you out if you need any help and support, takes you to parties, you know, integrates you. Mm. But then they just have to go and give it this weird, like, Oxford <laughs> thing of calling it college mother and father. So then you had, you know, incest, you had stepmothers, you had abandoned children and orphans. Marvellous. Yeah. Uh, come with me, I'll take you to the hall, we're going to have breastfeeding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? So Helen was my adoptive mother because my mother abandoned me because she wasn't sexually interested in me when I got there. Um, huh? Not to say that Helen was. Helen correctly had a pro- different priorities for her college children. Yes. And, Making sure you were happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was, you know, she was just very kind, at sort of um, inviting us all round for dinner in her room. She had one of these, um, I guess it was like a slow cooker type thing, but she, she, I'm sure she wasn't supposed to be using it because there wasn't a kitchen. She just had it on the floor, on the floor tiles, yeah. and used to cook us, like, do a whole chicken in that thing. Next to the fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, how lovely, though. But you two, what an extraordinary thing. You are absolutely the innovators, as far as podcasts are concerned, I think. There were so few people doing podcasts when you both started. Yeah. It's amazing. Now everybody's doing them. Yeah, literally everybody. Yeah. And it's a very competitive field. But that realising how important it was going to be was amazing. I guess. I mean... We were 25, so when you're 25, I think you're just more open to things. You know, you're trying to launch Mm. a career, and we both had an interest in broadcasting in some way, but both felt we weren't the right people to go through the traditional kind of uh, gatekeepers. You know, we were just, like, too fat and posh to be cool (laughs) and already too kind of old-sounding to be on Radio 1. And also then as well, like, being a male-female double act who weren't, like you know, celebrities that had had an experience together, because that was the thing that was happening. So people were being taken off reality TV and put on the radio. Mm. Or people where the, like, the sexual chemistry was the thing that people were interested in, which usually means that the female's kind of subservient to the male and giggling along at his jokes, you know. We definitely yeah. weren't doing that. We were a real partnership of equals. If anything, like Helen, intellectually stronger than me, and I was laughing at her jokes. Mm-hmm. And that was just a hard thing, I think, to place like there wasn't anyone who sounded like us on the radio so we wouldn't have been able to i suppose what i'm saying is we were kind of maybe right for radio four but 20 years too young and so what do you do with us <laughs> so like yeah. actually you just innovate don't you You find your own place to try and experiment and see if you can build an audience and so it wasn't it was no great imaginative leap to think oh this platform that adam and joe are on that we like mm-hmm. can we be on that too yes we can because the barriers to entry are pretty low Yes, quite. And then you put it out there and you wait for people to come. That's a bit Kevin Costner, isn't it? <laughs> Build like, it and they'll come, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but, but it, it happens. It's amazing. Yeah, although, I mean, and it was amazing that when we first launched Dance Me This in 2007, just with a teaser trailer, there were, because obviously the whole format was interactive, mm. there were people who we'd never met on the other side of the world who were asking us questions instantly and we didn't know how they found us and that was really amazing. <laughs> but at the same time... 
when you're not famous or you don't have any reputation or this is the first thing you've ever done, build it and they'll come doesn't work because you build it and they almost certainly won't ever find you. <laughs> so mm, yeah. the thing that actually I brought to the partnership, I think, because I think Helen didn't realize how unusual she was, the thing I was good at, I, work, I had a day job at the BBC at that point. I worked on the culture show as a researcher. And I had a very good sense of what you needed to do to grab the attention of the press and the kind of things that would make you stand out, just in simple kind of publicity stunt terms and growing an yeah, audience. Yeah, you did some interesting, uh, just little stunts that actually would get you into the papers. Yeah. It's a clever thing to do. But also, some of it isn't clever. Some of it is literally, and I still say this to like younger podcasters now who are starting, Like some of it is mm. literally just writing to people and asking you know, can you please write about my show? Yeah, or indeed lying. When I first started, we went to Australia. We were taken to Australia to do a tour. And literally, I was three, four months out of leaving college. And we went out there and we discovered that our publicity said, the new British Monty Python. (laughs) Go big or go home. (laughs) Exactly. And they had no idea, of course. And you couldn't look it up on the internet to see if everybody in Britain was saying, yes, they are. They just accepted it. And we were met at the airport by hordes of people from all sorts of television companies, newspapers, who all wanted to interview us. What's it like being the new Monty Python? That's brilliant. We went, it's great. We're having a great time. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, but that probably gave you a bit of confidence, didn't it? Because it's a bit Mm. like then acting the role of someone who's more popular than you are can influence how you actually behave the rest of the time, I suspect. Yeah, it did. Sometimes all it needs, isn't it, is for someone to treat you like you're doing something interesting and suddenly it feels like you are. (laughs) Or in fact, just walk into the room as if you are actually interesting. (laughs) I fail at that routinely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we shall find out as we find out the five things you want to put into a time capsule. Mm. Well, it's interesting. We've already touched base on some of the things um, that I might talk about because they do go back. It's funny, isn't it, when you start looking back on things that really matter to you, because, you know, I'm married and I've got kids and I, I could have picked stuff that's happened in the last 10 years. Mm. But I just kept returning to sort of childhood and formative experiences. I know a lot of your guests do that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so the first thing I'm going to choose as a thing to put in my time capsule is my school newspaper, which was called The Voice. And I think it sort of ignited my love for self-publishing, really, which is what podcasting is at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So uh, at my school we had this block of lessons on a Wednesday afternoon called Options. And Options was an attempt by the school to give kids a broader education doing something practical, you know, car maintenance, cookery, composting, gardening, whatever. (laughs) And I chose to do the school newspaper, which was sort of dreamt up that year by the head of English, who was this guy called Dennis Ricks. And the idea was during options, during this hour on a Wednesday, kids would go around, they'd go and take photos of the deputy head and do a Q&A with him, or they'd go and document a cricket match that's going on on the field. And then they'd, they'd come back, file their copy, and he'd put out this weekly sort of, basically just sheet of A3 fold and half. And that was mm. the school newspaper. And it's funny because I never had an interest really in being a reporter or in news. I wasn't interested in news or politics. I liked showbiz. I thought I'd, I'd do something showbizy, like maybe I'd be an actor or a director or even then maybe some sort of broadcaster, but but not news. Mm. But he obviously spotted in me that I'd found this interesting, that, I, that I'd really taken to it in this one-hour lesson. And in the very first week that the very first edition of The Voice was being produced, he happened to be putting it together in my boarding house, because like I was at boarding school and the teachers had to take it in turn to come in once a week and supervise the kids during our homework time. 
And he was doing that then, and he sort of invited me over. He said, come, come, have a look, see how I'm putting this together. And it turned out that my story, uh, the new Aaron Wood, Was It Worth It?, which was my takedown of a boarding house, <laughs> was, <laughs> was his front page splash. And I was so excited to be on the mm. front page of this new newspaper. I don't remember the, the point at which I became the editor, but at some point over that year, doing it every week, collaborating with this English teacher who was super supportive and sort of could see that I you know, was looking for somewhere to express myself. I slowly became the author of the opinion column, the sort of chief <laughs> reporter. I used to call myself the real voice of the voice. <laughs> um, the commissioner. I would literally print it out, you know, and photocopy 300 copies for the whole school. And I became the editor. I don't remember the point at which it was decided that I should be the editor because originally it was an, it was the English teacher who was making it, but then it became yeah. my thing, my gig at the age of 12 or whatever. And for three years, I ran that school newspaper. There was no budget apart from I had this hour on a Wednesday where the kids would give me copy for free. And then it was up to me to spend the rest of my week putting it together. And I mm. guess the school paid for the, the print run on the photocopying machine. But apart from that, you know, there was no incentive really. I just... Loved it. Aren't they brilliant teachers like that? Yeah. People who, because we're almost certainly, he was given the task of, you know, you've got to do this on a Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, come up with and a hobby. He thought, and he's like, he oh, thought, oh, God. for goodness <laughs> sake. Okay. And then he saw one child who seemed to be interested in it, yeah. who seemed to be attracted to it, and he, he drew you in. And in a way, then took the responsibility away from himself, said, well, off you go. Yes, then. yeah, yeah, very you know, clever. And, and so his time is free on a Wednesday afternoon. That's right. It's brilliant. <laughs> but also then inspiring you to get completely involved in something and discover something that, is, that has gone right through your life. Amazing. Yeah. And it really has. I suppose that's the thing when I look back on it. Two things. One is it gave me purpose as a teenager, which when mm. I hear people say, aren't the teenage years difficult? I agree because it's just easy to say that. I'm like, yeah, 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 it's really hard, you know, having spots, oh, hormones. But actually, it wasn't for me. <laughs> I was really happy as a kind of 13, 14, 15-year-old because I had this role. Mm. And I, I didn't go to school. Like, I edited the school newspaper, which happened to be based at school. That's what I was doing there. That was my entire raison d'etre. Yeah. And I learned through that three years just so much about... Because I'm, I also I took it tabloid, Mike. That's the other thing. So like, when it started, it was basically the Telegraph, and by the time I finished with it, it was the Sun under Kelvin McKenzie. Like I did, worm found on school and potato, you know, the whole thing, um, and sailed a bit close to the wind. And like again, the school was quite supportive because they could have definitely called me in for a chat as be like, you know, if you carry on with this, this is not great. But they never did. Mm -hmm. Like I was allowed to be kind of punky with it. There's also this is the '90s, so like. The stuff that I was reading was stuff like FHM and Maxim, which now you look at as kind of slightly toxic masculinity and quite mm. laddish and a bit unpleasant, but then felt really fresh and exciting and suddenly mm. like liberating as a teenage boy that you could just write about what you're actually interested in, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's the energy that I brought to this thing. And I used to stand up in the assemblies and market it, you know. I used to go on... <laughs> I called Jeremy Beadle's show on talk radio. The first time I was ever on the radio was calling Jeremy Beadle and getting him to promote The Voice. Not so I didn't care what the <laughs> listeners of talk radio thought of it. I wanted to tape him saying it so I could play Jeremy Beadle in my assembly promoting that week's edition to the school, you know. <laughs> 300 copies. 300 yeah. copies, yeah. <laughs> Completely focused on that audience. That's podcasting. That's what I've done ever since. It's a wonderful thing when a child discovers the thing that they really love, yeah. the thing that drives them on, because it drives everything else on as well. It, you say... All I did was the newspaper. Mm. And yet that led you to 
going to, well, applying for Cambridge and then going <laughs> to, to Oxford. Yeah, and, and actually carried on that same philosophy there. I mean, it was awful, mm. really. I didn't do my degree. I, I, I did Charwell, which is the Oxford University newspaper, and I directed plays, yeah. and I did student radio. But through those things, I'm saying, you know, how I met Helen, all the work I did with Helen was was based around that. So our professional relationship, which was kind of the most important professional relationship of my life, started mm. because she was the publishing officer at our college, and then I applied to take over from her. And so we collaborated together on this kind of guidebook for new students and that thing that we wrote is you know we both look at it now 25 years later and it's still funny to us anyway it's got good jokes in it um (laughs) and from that I sort of guested on her student radio show and that's how when it came to coming up with podcasting when we were 25 like I said it was the obvious thing to approach her because I was like well we've got Mm. this chemistry we've worked together and we've done all that through the education system really Amazing. Yeah. And those relationships as well are very important through life. And they'll continue, you know, whether you continue working together or not, it, it's not important. Having had that at that point in your life, the serendipity of it, the whole development of it, all comes from those little early things that you do, I think. Yeah, I mean, exploiting kind of connections that you have with clever, yeah. talented people is something that I'm never averse to doing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a great way to coast through stuff, isn't it? You know, if, you know, if yeah. you're not sure about the thing you're doing, but you, know, you think, well, this person's really funny and interesting, then work with them, you know. But what? I just get guests on here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that was a really formative thing. So there you are. So that's my first choice. Brilliant. The voice. Of course, um, I look forward to you suing ITV. For taking <laughs> yeah. the title. I mean, it's an obvious steal. I can see it myself. It's a good title. Good title. Okay, that's the first thing. That's we'll the first that thing. In. That's in. So what's the second thing, Golly? So second thing is a Nestle cereal called Curiously Cinnamon. Are you aware of it? Somewhere in my head. Cinnamon's very good for you, though, isn't it? I've been recently told, almost made, to put cinnamon on my porridge in the morning. Oh, really? What's it? Because mm. I know, like, turmeric's good for joints. What's cinnamon supposed to do? Um, I think it's very good for blood sugar. Okay, Mm. Well, Curiously Cinnamon, the cereal, is certainly not good for blood sugar because what you're tasting is sugar when you eat that. (laughs) And it's funny because I don't have a sweet tooth, really. Like, I'm definitely starter and main, not bothered about dessert. If I'm having it, it's Mm -hmm. cheese board. Like, that's me, right? Mm. But when I used to go home... So the boarding school was vegetarian and quite happy-clappy and inspired by Quakerism. Right. So when I'd go home at the weekend, I just wanted a fucking Big Mac and, like, you know, dirt <laughs> and filth. Yes. And so, so breakfast was just like, give me sugar, mainline sugar, please. <laughs> and then they were called Cinnamon Toast Crunch. They've gone through various phases over the years. Right. Um, Cinnamon Toast Crunch in the 80s, I think they were called Cinnamon Grahams in the noughties, which is just abhorrent. <laughs> who calls They've a, tried hard, Who they? calls a cereal Graham? <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> they're now called Curiously Cinnamon. And there's just something about that taste. It sort of takes me back to childhood, but the specific thing of coming back from boarding school and being grateful to be at home where there's a warmer toilet seat and satellite television. Mm. But also, and I think I felt this in the taste of this cereal at the time, America. It tastes like 80s American Spielbergian childhoods. That's what it tastes like. Right. And that, for me, as a child of the 80s, is so potent. I'm the Stranger Things generation, basically, right? So, like, <laughs> you know, that that vision of America, of, of actually what, it, as it turns out, is innocuous and slightly obnoxious suburban America, mm. to me, was sold as a dream. And it's I feel it's so strong that when I was, like, you know, late teens, early 20s, I wanted to go on holiday to America and I wanted to go on driving holidays and I wanted to 
eat their food and I, I loved I thought I loved their culture and I thought that it was the land of the free and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm exactly that generation that then sort of Trump came along and just killed it. So <laughs> killed it. That yeah. it, there's that double nostalgia going on. So it's for my own childhood, but also for what I thought America was before I realised that it's riddled with problems. The thing you picture, I always think, from those movies, and uh, tell me if this is a similar thing for you, but if I think of any of those movies, I think of somebody coming out of a huge house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, ridiculous huge house. Ridiculously like huge Steve house. Steve Martin's in Father of the Bride, that house. Yeah, exactly. You're just like, ridiculous. you live in the White House. What, you're a middle management guy who works in a shoe factory. <laughs> <laughs> and then they go into an enormous garage yeah. and they get on a sort of a chopper bike and then go down a slightly sloping driveway straight into the road. Yes. They never stop. They do it at full pelt. <laughs> There's no need to look for cars because there's no there are concern any. for pedestrians. No. Nope. Yeah. No. Nope. Straight into the thing and off you go. Yeah. And and then you possibly throw a newspaper to the right and to the left. That sort of world. Yes. That's my vision of it. Yeah, I guess it's just like a sort of it felt so optimistic compared to suburban Britain where I was. Mm. You know, suburban America was romanticized and there was no equivalent for suburban Britain. Like there was not there was no depiction of the kind of place I lived on telly where I thought, wow, I live in a cool place. <laughs> you know, it was just this kind of weird sort of post-Thatcherite fart and kind of damp, you know, just like, like what is this? What, what's the mm. thing What's the thing that I should be doing? What's the excitement about my life? What does it mean? Yeah. Whereas you'd watch American movies and it's like, all those kids are so confident. They go up to each other and they just tell each other who they are and what they represent, what they're interested in. And they have, like, magical 1950s nostalgia-influenced journeys with each other. <laughs> yes. And then, and then they discover dead bodies. Um, yeah, well, it's funny, isn't it, because it works in both ways. It works in this sort of um, E.T., so the magical world. Mm. It also works in this sort of comedy world. Mm. It works in uh, Home Alone. That's mm. very much that thing, isn't it? Mm. But also Poltergeist. <laughs> It's exactly the same house. Yes, yes, I know what you mean. I mean, of course, Home Alone, if you look at it too deeply, is kind of about child abuse and criminals <laughs> stalking a child who they want to kill. <laughs> and anyway, Cinnamon Toast Crunch seemed like the kind of cereal that Elliot in E.T. would be eating. Yeah. So I still do it now. So if I'm having a hard day, like I always have a carton of Curiously Cinnamon in my cupboard. and it's I Yes, probably... why change it to Curiously Cinnamon? What is curious about it? That's what I want to know. Exactly. I wanted to taste Graham. Now I've got cinnamon. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So do you have a cereal that you turn to for comfort? Um, crunchy nut cornflakes, I would say. Okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think I was absolutely one of those people who was convinced that one bowl is not enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's marketing. Yeah, it is marketing. Yeah. I always would have a bowl and then pour myself some more. Clever. It does have a similarly comforting sugary tint, crunchy nut mm-hmm. cornflakes. It's not a million miles away from Curiously Cinnamon. It just doesn't smack of america in the same way i suppose no that's that's the difference but it's funny like like i say i'm a savory person so my other comfort breakfast food if i'm having a hard morning is um chorizo sausage very different don't mix the two (laughs) it's an incredible thing but i'm looking forward to trying well i'm not sure i'm allowed to i've got but i'm in remission from uh, type 2 diabetes which is a result of overindulging myself absurdly during lockdown with wine. I got gout in that period 
which I uh, imagine had similar causes. Although, you know, afterwards you try and post-justify it and say, no, no, I was eating too many chickpeas. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that three beers a night was contributing. I'll try that argument with my wife. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's going to work. So, in fact, all those things are gone. Crunchy nut cornflakes, gone. That's why I say porridge and cinnamon. That's the main thing. If you've managed to actually curb something that would have been life-limiting, then that's probably more important than tasting some cinnamon on a nasty breakfast cereal. I think it is, yeah. And if that day ever comes for you, you can always revisit Curiously Cinnamon when we put it into the time capsule. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, you've provided a safe way for me to engage one of my pleasures. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's two things we've got in there. Uh, What's number three? He's good at this podcasting thing, Ollie, isn't he? Still, we have to interrupt this episode to play you some ads. But never fear, we will return. Unless, of course, that is the thing you fear. I mean, for some people, it's become a phobia. See you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back. Right, let's swiftly return to part two of My Time Capsule with Ollie Mann and discover what else he wants to put in his time capsule. I think you're going to be surprised by this choice. Again, it comes back to my childhood. It's a show that I saw when I was 10. It's Mike Batt's production of The Hunting of the Snark. Did you ever see it? I didn't see it, no, but I know exactly what it is. I mean, most people my generation don't know what it is because it was... Only on for seven weeks in the West End. Yeah, it was. It didn't work, did it? And, and Mike Batt had had enormous hits with the Wombles and things like that, hadn't he? Yeah. So he was the, yeah, exactly. So he was the songwriter behind the Wombles, Watership Down. Actually, also Phantom of the Opera. I mean, obviously that's Lloyd Webber's musical, but I think he produced the record or something. So he had a lot of royalties off that as right. well. So like peak eighties musical spectaculars. You can see how they raised the two million pounds for this show, but it was the biggest flop. Pretty much of all time, I think. It was at the Prince Edward Theatre with a £2 million budget, starring Kenny Everett, and it closed after seven weeks. Oh, Lord. But I saw it. I saw it, you know, in week two with my parents. And again, probably that thing of a weekend home from boarding school, so everything felt a bit heightened for me. Mm. And I loved theatre anyway. 
I've always loved theatre. I've always particularly loved musical theatre. I've always particularly loved batshit crazy ideas for musical theatre. <laughs> and this show is just like, what am I... It's based on a nonsense poem by Lewis Carroll, which doesn't deserve to be stretched out to three hours, but they did it. <laughs> and I suppose it's a bit like Cats in that way. And I've, I've never particularly loved Cats, but I, I liked the madness of it. And it's the same thing. It's just like, what is this? Why is this happening? Why does it work? Why does it work? And yet... There's something about children's theatre in particular that makes me cry. It's a very weird thing. Hmm. Uh, now I'm a dad. When I go and see any children's theatre, it's not about the quality of the theatre. It can be any old crap. Like, you know, we're going to see Blippi next week, and I know I'm going to cry when <laughs> Blippi comes on stage. But any children's theatre, Panto, even Punch and Judy shows, anything, you know, street theatre, anything where children are involved watching, Disneyland, I don't burst into tears. I have a lump in my throat. And I'm not someone who cries often. And I can't, I, I don't know what the cause of it is, but I think it might be being taken as a child to see things like this, which were so profoundly escapist that I wanted that adrenaline hit of going somewhere completely different from my life. Mm. And that's the magic of theatre, isn't it? And I think, I think the thing that's making me, I've tried to analyse it because it, I, like, for example, I took my son Toby, who's three, to watch The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Uh, <laughs> the other day at our local arts centre. It's the second time I've seen it because I took the older one to it as well. And it's a very accomplished show for three-year-olds, but it's, you know, it's it's three actors and some puppets. And again, I started crying when it started. And I think, why is this happening? Why am I crying? I think it's the Santa thing of all of these grown-ups are conspiring to create a reality for the children that are in this room to make them happy. And there's something so pure about that that moves me. Mm. And somehow it traces back to watching The Hunting of the Snark, which I just thought was so, I guess it was like opera for a 10-year-old, really. Just complete escapism, really overwhelming, funny, spectacular. And then you go out in the foyer and it's all about the merch, right? They're trying to sell the T-shirts and the posters mm -hmm. like, like Cats and Phantom. And they had the cassette of the concept album that Mike Bat had produced in the 1980s, which the show was based on. Right. Which had Roger Daltrey, Art Garfunkel, John Gilgood, George Harrison, John Hurt, Julian Lennon, Cliff Richard, Captain Sensible, that's who's in it, doing wow. a Lewis Carroll weird rock opera. <laughs> so I bought that, obviously, because that's the souvenir I wanted. And honestly, throughout the 90s, the only two albums that I was listening to really at that boarding school were... Dangerous by Michael Jackson, which every 10-year-old was listening to. <laughs> and The Hunting of the Snark by Mike Bat, which I know <laughs> off by heart, with all of its weirdnesses. And so, you know, I can just hear the opening chords and it just takes me straight back. So it's super nostalgic for me. And it's a, for me, it's about the magic of theatre. And genuinely, I, I think it's a good, I think it's a, a solid, mad 80s musical. Like, mm. To me, it's as good as Cats. And it's weird that no one ever listens to it. The musical that I would have found at that point was Jesus Christ Superstar, right, which yeah, yeah. had just come out. And if you analyse it, that's possibly more absurd than yes. doing The Hunting of the Snark. You know, we're going to put Jesus on a cross, he's going to sing a great big song. Yeah, well, I suppose, the, I mean, we've actually done an episode of, uh, this is a good opportunity to cross-promote my podcast Today yeah, in do. History with the Retrospectors. So I do a show called Today in History with the Retrospectors, which is an on-this-day-in-history format. And we've mm. done the day that Jesus Christ Superstar opened on Broadway. We've done that as an episode. Wow. And looking into how they put, like I said, I'm interested in musical theatre anyway, but looking into how that came about, it was never intended to be a theatre show, which is why it's mad as a theatre show. Mm. It was a concept album, which came from Tim Rice enjoying the idea of 
what if Judas is just an ordinary guy and you hear his perspective on what's happening? Yeah. Just exploring that idea in a playful way then became this super successful rock album in the United States to the extent that it was touring in unofficial pirated productions. No. Because there was this sort of licensing loophole really then in 1971 or whatever it was. Because obviously you can perform, if something's been published on a, well, on vinyl it would have been then, on as an mm. LP, you can do a cover of it, can't you? And yeah, uh, you just have to pay the publishing royalties. And, yeah. you know, that's how a cabaret bar singer sings a song. But what they were doing was performing Jesus Christ Superstar in its entirety in rock stadium tours. <laughs> and Rice and Lloyd Webber weren't making any money out of that apart from their songwriting royalty. Mm. And they mounted an argument with, is it Brian Eastman, who was Linda McCartney's father? Uh, no, Lee Eastman, I think. Yeah, media lawyer guy. Mm. He was the reason that Paul McCartney got into the whole thing about owning your own rights and that whole dispute with Michael Jackson over who owned the Beatles catalogue. Mm. So he intervened with Robert Stigwood, who was representing Andrew Lloyd Webber, and said, we're going to get a legal decision on this. This is out of order. You can't perform the uh, whole work and, and, and not give us any money. And eventually they established that precedent. So that's now the case. You can't just do an entire album and without the permission of, of the people who created it. Right. But they, they, they sort of opened on Broadway to stop the fact that there were all these performances <laughs> going on that they had no royalties from. And that's how I would have come to it as well, actually, thinking about it now. We all knew that album, Inside mm. Out, when we went to see the show. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, we could sing every word. It's a great rock album. Oh, yeah. But it's a bit of a weird show. And I think it's because <laughs> it's a radio play, really. Because it's not designed to be seen, just listened to. It's probably better in a stadium, I should mm -hmm. imagine. You can never tell with a musical what's going to work. Yeah. And I think that people do come along with really bold ideas. So yeah. Mike Batt thinking, well, why shouldn't this work? No. And if those things do work, you're very rich. So Yeah, but it's not as if Les Mis isn't dark, is it? You know, well, yeah, people are allowed to charge around pretending to be trains. Well, if you're talking about Starlight Express, Mike, that's another mm -hmm. formative memory for me, and I'm not going to have you trash it. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. Secondly, they're not pretending to be trains. They are trains oh. in the imagination of the children who are watching it. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Good. <laughs> I love the fact that people are bold. I love the fact also that you saw it in that very short period and still have such a fond memory of it. I think it's great. Such a strong memory. Mm. I mean, it's just in preparation for this for the first time ever, I googled it. Because it's all in my head. Like, I know the music. Yeah. And I, I still sometimes... It's now on Spotify, the album, so you can stream it. So do check it out. Mm -hmm. But um, I hadn't sort of looked around to see what there was on the internet about it. And I found an article that Bat wrote for The Express in, I think, 2014. And he was writing it off the back of something else failing in the West End, I think possibly Stephen Ward, which was Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical. Mm. He was writing about that and saying, when the show closed, he was financially broke and clinically depressed. And it's funny, he said, but then I had a big sort of mailbag full of people that had seen the show saying how much they loved it. And I was actually one of those people. I wrote a letter to Mike Bat when I was 10 huh. saying I was really sorry that his show had closed. <laughs> and I can imagine for a while I was like, why would you ignore a letter from a kid? Everyone writes back to a kid. I felt snubbed. And uh, now I can imagine like if he'd lost all his money and he was clinically depressed and then he mm. had thousands of letters like that, you're not going to... Writing back to a 10-year-old's harder, isn't it? But I'd like to think that he read it because it was really formative for me. And that as a... Well, that tends to suggest that he did read it. He remembers those and how mm. much they supported him. Because it must have been awful. And it's, it's embarrassing, isn't it? It's got this Liz Trust feel. Yeah. Because it's public. You know, the West End's a big deal. Like, a second mm. only to Broadway. In international theatrical terms, you've made a big thing. And then lots of people say, no, it's shit. 
Yeah. That's really hard. You can see why people prefer to workshop these things, take them on tour first, mm-hmm. you know, do what they did in the 70s and do these concept albums first because you don't want to subject yourself to that level of embarrassment, basically, do you? Yeah, or in fact, nowadays, not take the risk of putting something new out. Exactly. Just, Just taking lots of songs that everybody already knows and you know yeah, they yeah. like them and put yeah. them together in a show. Which I'm not interested in. No. I mean, I like original musicals and I like the musical form. I mean, I can't think of many jukebox musicals that I really like. I'm much more interested, like you say, of going along and seeing someone being surprised by a song. And a story. I mean, like, like I'm saying, these absolutely mental ideas for shows. <laughs> <laughs> when it works, that's what's magic, isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't know what's going to happen or why someone would choose this story to be a musical. And then when it works, it's like, wow. Well, how fantastic. I'm going to tweet Mike Batt as soon as this goes out and say to him, you will be delighted at this choice. (laughs) Number three, in it goes. Yeah, Yeah. hunting the snark. Fantastic. Okay, right, on to number four. So we've got a good one and a bad one left. Uh, Okay, so the good one, this is more based around my life now and not my childhood, and it's the Green Belt. Very good. It is the Green Belt countryside around London. Where were you brought up then? Well, like I said, I went to boarding school, which is in Letchworth in Hertfordshire, uh, and uh, my childhood home was in Stanmore in Greater London. Mm. And I now kind of live between those two places, actually, so I'm still in the same kind of nexus. And I think that probably informs a little bit how I think about it, because, you know, Stanmore, you can see 70 years ago, would have been quite rural, and now... Mm is a nice suburb, but it's a suburb. Like, there's a lot of concrete and a lot of boring houses and roundabouts and roads that all look the same. There's a lot of trees as well, but there's not a lot of green space. Mm. And then where I live, which is only like 25 minutes up the road, I live in basically the first village you come to as you drive up the A1 and go out of London. We chose to live here, myself and my wife, because, and I remember the day we sort of saw it, it's like an oasis of calm and green and... Like, beauty is too strong a word because, like, the Greenbelt countryside isn't beautiful. It's just, it's got its own quiet, unspoiltness, but that's the thing that makes it special. It's just shrubs and nature and, and trees. And when you hit that after driving through all those dirgy suburbs, it does something in, in your head, which is corrective. And we chose to live here and bought our first house here. And our house is great because it backs onto fields. Like, look out of one back window, it's fields. Look out the front window, it's fields. Mm. But in the distance, out that front window, is the buzzing hum of the M25 in the distance. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't mind it, actually. It's right there in the distance and you can't hear it. And it kind of adds a sort of interesting urban feel. But it really underlines how special and fragile the Greenbelt is. The only reason there's a field between the M25 and my house is because of some planning laws from the 1960s or 70s or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they're constantly, and I really do mean constantly, trying to reverse those laws. Well, because that land is worth a fortune. Yeah. I know lots of people, my father included, who bought sections of it because they thought this can't last forever. And that's the feeling. Mm. It's like an existential feeling of this isn't going to last. If you zoom out in 100 years' time, there's no way that where I live just won't be London. You know, I'm too close to London and I'm inside the M25. Once you've drawn a circle around London, it's obvious that everything in the circle is London. You just fill it in, yeah. You just fill it in. So since 1985, there's been this pressure of, mm. for people living around here of like, this is amazing. What's amazing about it isn't the scenery in and of itself. It's the fact that the scenery exists so close to London and yeah. that won't last forever. So I've just become 
I suppose I've become a NIMBY in a way. <laughs> like, I don't want development in my backyard. But the reason I don't is because it's my backyard, not because it's me, but no. because I know how special it is because I live here. Yeah, and it will be other people's backyard one day. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you think, in 200 years' time, I'd like someone else to have this sort of experience. Mm-hmm. And they won't. No. I was brought up right next to the green belt, and I know exactly what you're talking about. So as a child, I could do the American thing of drive out of the garage, down my drive, into the close, so straight into the road. Even having said that I couldn't do this, I, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> eating your cinnamon grahams as you Eating go. my cinnamon grahams, throwing newspapers left and right, and, and then charge off, and within two minutes, I was cycling down country lanes. Hmm. And yet I was completely surrounded by an enormous conurbation. Yeah. I love living here, mm. and it makes me sad to know that it won't last, and it, it triggers all the things in you that want to protect things, like bringing up children here makes me want to protect it for them. And it's literally on a daily basis that a leaflet drops through my door from a development company who are building houses here or a protest group who are protesting houses here. And, of course, that tears you in half as well because people need to live somewhere. We need to build more houses near London. I accept mm-hmm. all that. And then some of them are like, well, actually, this particular bit of... OK, so there's a piece of land next to the pub which is currently owned by one rich person and they're going to put 150 houses on that house, which was just one rich person's house. Yeah. And actually, I can't really object to that just because there'll be a bit more traffic. That doesn't seem fair. Like, 150 people should take precedence over one private person's field. Yes, yes. But that's not the green belt. The green belt's the bit around it. And they're just tossing those two things together like they're the same thing, and they're not. It's really important to have a buffer, and it's important for people's mental health. Mm. And I think a lot of the... I'm picking my words carefully... Affluent Tory voting homeowners around here have chosen not to broadcast that around here there's lots of public footpaths and lots of benefits of being out in the wild. Mm. They've chosen to keep that to themselves and vote in their own self-interest, which I also understand. But it means that there are people who live in, you know, council blocks and apartment buildings with no green space 20 minutes down the road from here that don't know we're here. Yeah, 20 minutes, and then just walk into green fields. Yeah. I feel like that there's nothing wrong with the central idea of the green belt. What's gone wrong is, is people have stopped talking about it being a thing that's for everybody. Mm. Of course, we don't need every field around here. But if you don't have a very simple kind of buffer on the green belt, which is such a good idea for the mental and physical health of people in London, then you, you lose it forever. It will, everything will be London. So I feel that very intensely and slightly hopelessly. So I would like to put the green belt into the time capsule so that it stays. That's a very good idea. I think we should put it in there with a big sign outside saying not to be touched. (laughs) Well, you'd think that would be the rule, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, absolutely. We should put that into the time capsule. Well done, Ollie. Good man. (laughs) Okay, so we've got to put in the one thing that you'd like to get rid of. (sighs) Okay, so I'm not someone who tends to regret stuff that I do because I think experimenting is important. I think um, the way that I've conducted my career is basically putting it all out there anyway. You know, you can go back through my work and see stuff that I would rather, well, not rather you didn't listen to, but would only rather you listen to in the context that it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, So I'm I'm not an innately regretful person. But there is, again, going back to my school days, there's one thing that I did when I was at school, when I was 10 or 11, which when I want to indulge those feelings of regret, I recall, (laughs) which was... I formed a a band, well, just me, really. I mean, self-publishing again, really. Um, Inspired by Weird Al Yankovic, I guess, who um, my friend listened to a lot. 
And we did kind of cover versions of songs. So like Weird Al Yankovic did Eat It for Beat It, didn't he? Mm-hmm. We did Sad for Bad. Like that was the joke. Not very sophisticated, but we were 11. <laughs> and one of the songs that I wrote was about my best friend, who's still my best friend, and I'm not going to name him for this reason, which is in the song, I basically bullied him. Like I did a takedown of this friend of mine. And I'd, I'd sort of tried to be sophisticated. I thought I was doing a comedy record. So I tried to make it as because he was bullied by other kids in our school and he was my friend. I tried to make it a song that was mocking the people that bullied him. Mm. But the problem was I was it was that Al Murray thing. I was basically playing to two audiences at once, like people who didn't understand that it was a joke. Yeah. But also people to whom I was quite happy for them not to understand that it was a joke because I wanted to be popular because I was joining in the joke that my friend was a bit of a dickhead. Mm. And I put this thing out on a cassette and I sold it you know, around my boarding house. And no one told me not to. None of the teachers said, that's not on. And then, even worse, (laughs) I mean, but actually this wasn't, this makes me sound like a really terrible person. This wasn't part of the scheme. This was by accident. (laughs) Yeah. I sold the cassettes on an open day where there were parents around with money. And I said that the money would go to Great Ormond Street and I kept it. Oh, God. I had a big pot saying money to Great Ormond Street Hospital, which I'd inadvertently misspelt, which of course must have looked really charming. I spelt it like Almond the Nut. <laughs> so like these parents who are quite wealthy with kids at boarding school saw this sign saying Great Almond Street and thought, oh, it's chucked 20 quid in. Like I made probably 100 pounds. Selling a cassette in which I bullied my friend mm. and then I kept all the money. <laughs> and I kept all the money because I didn't know how to donate it to Great Ormond Street because I was 10. Like, yeah. I just I just thought, well, we'll, we'll work out the details later. <laughs> and then no grown-up ever came to me and said, what did you do with that money? So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, like I say, he's still my friend. Uh, I was best man at his wedding, and uh, he was best man at mine. And, you know, we've never talked about that, and it was just one thing that happened when we were 10. But it's the kind of thing when you're the person who you know you've done something bad, mm. I just, I, it just always haunts me because I'm trying to contextualise it with my own intention. That's what I think is important when you've got a regret about something you've done. What was your intention at the time? Yeah. You know, did you inadvertently say something that someone thinks is racist or were you trying to be racist is an important difference to me. Mm-hmm. I know that in this world of cancelling people, it isn't. But to me, that's really important. That's all of it to me. Yeah, absolutely. And in honesty, my intention was to make myself more popular, partly through bullying him. Yeah. So that's a hard thing to swallow. Mm. So, yeah. But. Yeah, in a way, you knew you, you knew you were doing it. I knew what I was doing. You knew you were repeating the jokes that the bullies used. Yeah. You didn't have it playing on a loop behind you while you were selling it to the parents, <laughs> did you? Um, I can't say I didn't. I can't, re- I, I can't <laughs> no. remember. I can't remember that. Oh, Lord. <laughs> it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Writing a comedy song about someone that can look as if you're just being rude about them or just bullying them. Mm. And in fact, I've been involved in a number of parody songs over the years, and I now look at some of them and go, mm, that's not really fair. That's, that's <laughs> rude. We had a very funny line in a Paul McCartney parody, which was, um, and I've got my wife here with me. She may be singing in a different key. And that's, <laughs> that's all it was. But... I now think about it and think, that's not fair. If that was my wife, yes, I would be annoyed. I think it is different to your mate who's vulnerable. Yeah, you should talk to him about it. You should talk to him and just say, look, you've probably forgotten this. And you will find almost certainly that he has. Yeah, I know, yeah. But uh, the fact that it still bugs you after all this time. <laughs> I, think, I, think, no, I think that's really commendable that it does. Well done. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, okay. All I'm going to say is, you know, thank you for doing this. We shall put that into the time capsule, bury it, and then once you've chatted with him about it, 
we'll seal it up and you can forget about it. Yeah, it's very cathartic. It's been lovely to talk to you, but I, I really look forward to the £100 cheque that will be going to <laughs> the correctly spelt Ormond Street Hospital. I should say, I have made amends on that front in the intervening <laughs> well years. Done. I did think that was a thing I could do. So yes. I, have, I didn't add interest, mind you. Maybe I should have done that. £100 in 1991 money is probably more like 300 now, isn't it? Yes, imagine you'd invested it in property. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie, how lovely. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Ollie Mann. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast enough to rate and maybe review it. And if you've subscribed, then welcome to the gang who gets sent every episode on the day it's released so they can listen to it at their leisure. You might also want to become associated with My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram and or Facebook, where you'll find out all the news about what we're up to and what's coming up. I'm on those social media sites as well if you'd like to follow me. If you do, I promise I'll say hello and answer any questions you have. You can listen to the theme tune in glorious isolation anytime you like on Spotify. You can even download it and maybe have it as a ringtone. I mean, then if people ask you, what is that fascinating and catchy piece of music? You can tell them it's the My Time Capsule theme tune, written by Pass the Peas Music. And they can say, oh, I thought it was the latest Coldplay single. And you can say, don't be silly. It's far more complicated and interesting as a tune than anything Coldplay have ever released. And then you can have a massive row resulting in the end of your lifelong friendship. Actually, you better just listen to it on your own. You don't want to cause trouble. This was a cast-off production for Acast, and it was produced, as ever, by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to listen to today's episode of Today in History with the Retrospectors. Actually, thinking about all the podcasts Ollie makes, perhaps I should do another podcast. I've got an idea. Do you want to hear it? I said, do you want to hear it? Thank you. It's me chatting to my grandson. Well, mostly listening to my grandson chat about whatever he finds of interest at the time. He's particularly hot on geography, maps, flags of the world, and that FIFA pro football game on Nintendo, which obviously it would be useful for me to hear about because I know nothing about it. He likes um, Phoenix Foxes, British and American politics, the nature of space and time, and several other fascinating subjects. His name is Nathaniel, but we all call him Natty. So let me know if you'd be interested in hearing a podcast called Chatty Natty. It's got to be better than whistling in the wind, doesn't it? Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.